Hello, sweet dogs. We are new to who. Whether you don't know the old and only the new, we are the chaps with suggestions for you. I'm Stephen. I'm Dan. And I'm Rob. Hey! Hello. Welcome, Rob. Rob Owen from the Doctor Who Show has joined us today for Enlightenment. Rob, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, you're from the Doctor Who Show, a flagship Australian podcast. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about uh, maybe where we can find you um, yeah. and what you're working on at the moment? And also how you got into Doctor Who in the first place. Oh, of course. Yes. Yeah. Oh, gosh. It, how I got into Doctor Who, that goes right back to the 70s because I had an older brother who watched the show. Oh. Mm. So he would have it on and call me in to watch it and the theme music would come on. I'd be terrified and <laughs> I'd run out of the room and that was the end of that. Then by about the <laughs> mid-80s, I, I, I sort of became... I could hold my own against the theme tune, as I like to say. And I, <laughs> I, uh, I would then watch episodes around the age of 8, 9, 10. So this is like the Dave O'Era going into Colin Baker. Mm-hmm. And in... December of 86 I bought Doctor Who magazine and I think that's the that's the crossover point for a lot of people yeah, to becoming a fan seals, buying the magazine seals right, the deal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's when I'd say I became a fan and so I think in early 87 I look over to Dave and the peanut gallery do we have a trial of a time lord in 87 yeah thumbs up okay early 87 I watched trial of a time lord as a fan okay what a terrible series to watch <laughs> first as a I fan apologize. but you made it through <laughs> You were strengthened and you came through, forged a new man on the other side. That, that's right. And that, that's how I became a fan. And the Doctor Who show, we're, we're moving into our third year uh, as we speak, uh, which is very exciting. Uh, originally started off as a podcast, a Star Wars and Doctor Who hybrid called Who Wars. Mm-hmm. Wow. And uh, that went on for about 40-something episodes. We were, we were weekly for a long time, so it was very easy to rack up a lot of episodes. <laughs> it's not like we went for a long period of time. And uh, and that moved into the Doctor Who show, and, and here we are. Yeah, Fabulous. Lovely. And... And Rob, you're a, a famous Peter Davison fan. Am I? <laughs> well, well, it very much comes across on the Doctor Who show. Do you want to tell I us why? I dressed up as him once on television. <laughs> tell us oh the story. <laughs> when, uh, briefly, in 1988, when they were about to show Remembrance of the Daleks for the first time and Doctor Who had turned 25, they had a, a, a game show on the afternoon show that was showing <laughs> Doctor Who at the time. And we went in, myself, uh, some club members from my local group. Uh, Kate Orman was there. Oh, uh, wow. Dallas Jones was the uh, president of the Doctor Who fan club at the time he was there and we all got on TV and most of us were dressed up and I was dressed up as Davo <laughs> I would pay money to see that yeah. and like Patrick Troughton the episode has been erased <laughs> from the archives <laughs> I, I actually want to find someone out there who's got a copy of it because I would love to see it if again this, but it officially nice. the ABC does not have it oh, they've wiped tragic. it even they, a photo would be enough yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Davison why Davison why does he appeal to you because we are doing a Davison story in enlightenment this this time yeah it's, it's it's an interesting one i think when i was younger it was partly to be contrary oh. because everyone had seen tom baker a million times but there was this younger doctor and and to me quite a different doctor and i thought well i'm, I'm gonna like this one and then over time i just came to really gravitate towards the character mm. i think just uh a guy who doesn't win all the time, a guy who's a bit sweeter, you know. Mm. Just There was just something about him being younger that just resonated with me. It's a very British thing to be uh, a gracious loser, someone yes. who knows how to lose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got to admit that uh, Davison was also my doctor, not initially as a kid watching, uh, I guess, probably in the late 80s, the Tom Baker sort of serial repeats um, that were always on after school. 
Uh, but a little bit later, uh, when ABC started to screen them in at four thirty in the morning, do you remember? Yes, that? I do, and that's when I caught Davison. It's when I and it was just on every day, almost every weekday. Yeah, so that was my first intro to Davison uh, in terms of uh, on screen. But I'd come through uh, the Target novelizations and was quite taken by the stories yeah. and the character. And I think at that point, uh, being sort of a you know, burging into adolescence, he very much became my favourite doctor during that period of my time, during my teenage years. I guess because for similar reasons, this is a guy who's, who's a really decent chap. That's mm-hmm. the one word that I think I could use to summarise Davison, decent. Uh, and all of the sort of Englishness that comes with the connotations of that word. I mentioned in the Earthshock podcast a long time ago that uh, the preamble to the rules of cricket state that the, the <laughs> game should be observed not only within the letter of the laws but also within the spirit. And I think, you know, Davison as the cricketing doctor mm-hmm. embodies that as well. Uh, yeah, I just love Davison's doctor and yeah. have done um, since that time. I, I was also a fan of All Creatures Great and Small oh, as well. Okay, oh, okay, yeah. Wow. yeah right. So although in the UK people saying, oh, it's the wet vet and, you know, being very disparaging about that, <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought, this is great. Yeah. It's Tristan. He's now on Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> Sensational. This is awesome. Uh, yeah, and as we mentioned in the Earthshock podcast uh, episode, Davison was specifically chosen because he was a huge household name. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you follow Tom Baker? Yeah. You need a star, and they got one in Davison. And he and he went in a different direction, which is definitely the right choice. Yeah, you know, you it had to be very different to, to Baker. And you know, whereas uh, Tom's a, a huge, larger than life, bombastic presence, uh, Davison, as we'll see, is a much softer character, more measured. Yeah. He was. He was even flogging pots and pans. Have you seen that commercial? I've not. He's from the early 80s. No. He's flogging pots and pans. Wow. <laughs> I think we might have to get a clip of that. Oh, definitely. Put that in the show notes. In the show sure. notes. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Lovely. All right. Well, lovely. Let's, let's start looking at our TARDIS team because having spoken a bit about Davison, it's the fifth Doctor, the fifth incarnation, which is, I guess, 1981 to 1983 or 82 to 84 on, on British uh, television screens. Um, what, what do you make of him and his companions, Rob? This is the TARDIS crew I think I like the most. <laughs> Even though I like season 19 very much in terms of the stories, sure. this is the team I like the most because it, it's, it's dropped one. We're down to a two-companion team. From it's three. more manageable. Three's isn't it? always always feels like one too many. Yeah, that's well, right. Except in the William Hartnell years, I think. Sure. But I think you're right. We've got Tegan, who is a nice counterpoint to Davo's Doctor, yes. which is a good thing. And now we've got Turlow, who's just come in a couple of stories earlier mm-hmm. and is an interesting character. Yeah. <laughs> a very interesting character. <laughs> let's, uh, let's go back to Tegan then. Uh, you mentioned that she's very different to the Doctor, and she is. How would you characterise her? Australian. <laughs> <laughs> Spiky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, quick to anger. Yes, <laughs> I think they're probably her three main attributes. <laughs> Although when we've got to this, when we got to an, by the time we got into Enlightenment, she's a little. She's Janet Fielding, the actress, has started to tone it down a little, and she's mm. uh, she underplays a lot um, in this one. She's got good point. But she's got plenty of reason to be um, angry. Like she usually gets wildly angry. Um, she's being pestered by the uh, by Mariner the whole time. So she's got plenty of plenty of reason to be upset, but she keeps it keeps it under wraps most of the time. She keeps it down, holds mm. it down. Yeah, it's a good performance. I think um, Janet Fielding as Tegan, you probably couldn't cast anyone else. She's just mm. synonymous with the part in Fantastic. my mind. Um, and it's not just that the, the actress sort of comes to terms with the part. I think the character mm. uh, matures as well. She's a very, 
almost angry young woman who um, is particularly angry, I think, not just for missing her flight, but because she's ripped from her home and her, her aunt has been killed, killed uh, um, yeah. in, way back in the Horribly murdered. And I think she's dealing with that at some level. And I think here we are in the second season of, of Tegan, um, and she has, I guess, learnt to... I guess she's learnt to live with the universe in all its glory and disappointment and, and nastiness. She's the, the companion that stays the longest with Davison. I think she just gets the most character development. Yeah, and I think, you think she's the character that I immediately think of when I think yeah. of that, um, that era. Yeah, when you think about it, she almost spans three Doctors mm. if she'd gone a little longer. Yeah, because <laughs> it's two or three stories away from the twin dilemma, isn't it, that that's, she leaves? That's right. And just mentioning Aunt Vanessa there, she does make a cameo in this story. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah we've picture. got a little picture by her bedside. That's quite <laughs> sweet, yeah. And Turlo, okay, what do we make of him? He's a character that was introduced two stories ago in Mordred Undead, which was the beginning of a trilogy, I guess, that involves uh, the Black Guardian, which we last saw Sweet Dorks in... Well, I guess season 16 with the key to time is mm-hmm. a, a season that we haven't looked at as yet. Sure. But he's kind of like the embodiment of evil, if you like, in the universe. And Turlo's somehow, oh, well, I guess involved with him. Yeah, wrapped up. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And and as a kid, I, I didn't like Turlo at all mm. in these stories, which I guess <laughs> was the intent. Yeah. You know, you're, you're yeah. not meant to like this guy. You think, Doctor, why are you? Why do you believe this guy? Why do you trust him? Oh, no. You know, yeah. very pantomime. like, don't do it, Doctor. Um <laughs> Now, though, I can see there's a bit more nuance to the to the performance, yeah. and, and he's a quite an interesting character. I quite like Turlo. Yeah, he's very conflicted, isn't he? That's, that's that. the main word I always think of when yeah. I think of Turlo, is because he's got that choice. It's always in the background. Mm, um, definitely. But I think he's at his best when when he's sort of when he's doing things outside of that Black Guardian storyline that he's attached to when he's just being Turlo in the story especially after the after this episode but um after the story mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but also in the bits where he's just being Turlo with the Doctor and Tegan you could say that it's always in the back of his mind but you know in the performance he sometimes he's just another companion which Sh- I think is when he's at his best sure yeah definitely and the Black Guardian trilogy obviously wraps up with this so that that character that bit of the character arc for Turlo I guess mm. is, is laid to rest and we get to see him uh, in his actual sort of state after he, this yeah, I will say Mark Strickland is really good yeah, at yeah. losing it. Yeah, <laughs> really good. Like really, really. Like you could say it's over the top, but it's really quite chilling sometimes, especially mm. when he's trapped in that room. But we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's our TARDIS team. What about our production team, Dan? Well, we're, we've still got JNT. We've had him for quite a while, and we'll have him for quite a while to come. <laughs> John Nathan Turner, the infamous. Yeah, I think we've said all we probably need yeah. to say about John Nathan Turner in previous episodes. Everyone said, I think everything that's going to be said about JNT has been said already. <laughs> all I'm going to add is that uh, I guess he tried to make season 20, because this is the 20th anniversary of mm. Doctor Who, the entire season a bit special. Uh, that comes across in some yeah, stories some and parts. not so much in other ones. Definitely. But this, for me, is the highlight of season 20. Yeah, it's one of the highlights of Davison, I think. Yeah, I would concur with that. Season 20 is not a favourite season at all. <laughs> but uh, it's a great story in it, yeah. All right, and Rob, I'm going to throw to you for the script editor for this period, Eric Sayward. What do you think of him? I I quite like Eric Sayward. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> I've got to say, I think he was doing what... In the 80s, I think he was replicating what people were watching in the 80s and sure. wanted to watch. And, 
and so on. You know, you, people talk about video nasties and so on. He's he's looking at that sort of thing. He's working that into Doctor Who. He has a more he has a tougher brand of Doctor Who that, mm. as a kid, I liked because mm. as a kid, that's mm. what we were watching in other shows. Yeah, and, okay. You know, uh, and and when I look back on on his time now, and when I look at him in in the DVDs, in the commentaries, and so on, um, talking about his time on the show, I can empathise with a lot of the situations he was in. You know, particularly when he talks about his relationship with John Nathan Turner, I know it's hard because mm. John's not around to defend himself. Yeah. But I think the way he talks about things is fairly balanced. You know, he'll say John was running off to conventions. Well, John was running off to conventions. And, you know, <laughs> things weren't getting done because John was away. That is true. That can be borne out. So I've got a bit of time for Saywood. The commentaries did have softened me a lot on, t- on Saywood. Hearing him say things in his own words has changed my opinion of him a little, for, mm. definitely for the more favourable. I, look, I think I get an insight into the production context that maybe uh, I was lacking watching these for the first time in the 90s and sure. being unaware, I suppose, of what television in the 80s back then would have been because it sort of predated me in many ways. There are, however, a number of issues that I think we're going to talk about sure. in terms of his take on the Doctor and maybe how Enlightenment is maybe the antidote to, I guess, Saywood's sure. uh, more grim yeah. take on Doctor Who. He's copped a lot of flack over the, over time for um, his stories are often a little bit nasty and filled with death, a lot of gunfights and mm. some stuff that's a little bit cold some like sort of American 80s action Yeah, as you say, elements. like A-Team would have been on at the same time. Exactly. You can't say he wasn't true to himself, like he didn't, he didn't, you know, he, he wrote it the way he wanted to, then exactly. you've got to admire him for that. But I guess what we have here in this story written by Barbara Clegg yeah. is a very very different take on that period and Barbara Clegg Interestingly, this is the only story that she ever wrote for mm. Doctor Who, and I just wonder what did yeah. she do wrong? Why? Because it was yeah, it's so great. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have examples of that all through Doctor Who. People who, who we we did an episode once where we talked about great Doctor That's Who right. writers who've only done one or two stories, yeah. and there's quite a few of them when you go back and have a look. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so sometimes I don't think they've done anything particularly wrong. It's she, just scheduling or something. I, yeah. I don't know. I know she, she got one knocked back by Cartmel, and um, uh, when Cartmel was there. Ah, uh, that's right. Yeah. And she did go on. I think one of them got turned into a big, big finish, finish she's yeah. definitely got at least two big finishes I think so yeah. I'm keen to listen to those now after we talk about Enlightenment mm. yeah and a woman writer and a woman director it's yeah. Fiona Cumming yeah. one of the true giants of Doctor Who direction definitely she uh, what does she do Snake Dance she did uh, Castor of Alva which yeah, is one of Steve's one, yeah, big personal faves. favorites but she's been on the show for a lot longer before that she was a, a production assistant for other things she got all, goes all the way back to being a floor manager for the massacre <laughs> so that's as long as I'm right that's quite going back quite a way yeah, it's 1966, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. But Fiona Cumming, any favourites that she's done of yours, Rob? She did Planet of Fire, I'm pretty sure. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, right. And I think that's probably in my top three Davo stories. Yeah, yeah, I can sure. that, sure. And that's one of hers. Something she says in uh, one of the pieces on the DVD is that she... Don't, don't give me the, the... Does she say the pepper pots or something like that? The metal machines. Don't give me those. Give me the more fantasy type stories. Yeah. And that's what she got. And she, I think she does very well with Enlightenment, Castro Valva, things like that. I think she's a, a rare example of a director who's able to direct actors in terms of the emotional stakes of the story, mm. but actually a competent technical director as well. Mm. Yeah, a lot of great shots. A lot of It's very tight, a lot of great editing. Mm. and then But yeah, definitely in her direction of the actors because there's a lot of parts that are... You get your Eternals who are kind of blank in a way. So they could be played in all kinds of different ways. But yeah. Especially with Mariner and and, um, and Rack, who's a great character. Uh, <laughs> Stryker is, is a character that I think is beautifully played by Keith Barron as and, well. And it could have been just a little bit different. And it mm-hmm. could have been very staid and, and, all, and all wrong. But I think, I mean, it's definitely down to the actors as well. But yeah, I think it's the a stellar cast for yeah. sure. 
All right, Steve, if you were going to sum up this story in a scintillating one-liner, what would that be? Well, I can tell you that it wouldn't be this. The Doctor lands on an Edwardian sailing ship that is actually not adrift on the seas but floating in space. There, he meets the Eternals, powerful and yet impotent creatures from beyond our universe who compete for the mysterious prize known only as Enlightenment. That's beautiful. A beautiful two-sentence description that I will not pull you up on because you're my friend and I love you. I have a sentence too. Oh, oh Ooh, wow. Yeah, please. please. Guess sentence. Never trust a pirate. <laughs> Full stop. Good call. Because, oh, what on earth is that? Oh, goodness. Uh, okay, so we're heading into spoiler territory. Uh, close the vacuum shield. Who is that? And I'm going to concentrate very hard to get us there. Focus, Dan. Focus. I'm trying to focus. 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 And I think we're there. We're in spoiler town. All right. Get me out of this chamber. (laughs) All right. So, enlightenment particular favorite of mine um can we start please with the idea of the eternals they're just a wonderful i like magicals uh, perfect doctor who idea i i love the fact that even when they're killed they're not really killed because yeah. mm. they they don't quite exist in the way we think of existence mm, they're, yeah. they're, they're outside of time mm. so they can they can take part in these races they can kill each other but they just will magically go back to their home planet or, or they go somewhere i believe beyond the realms of the universe they're yeah. bo- not bound within time and yeah. so they go back to that period or i guess what we see in the news um series is and their name check the eternals is they go back to the void so if, if our sweet dogs think back to the end of series two with uh with david tennant and and billy piper there's that void that the daleks and the cybermen get sure. sucked into that's where the Eternals are. Well, mm. Because because they say that we exist in eternity. When I was at, well, the first time I watched this as a kid, I remember um, so many times at Doctor Who, I uh, got mind-blowing concepts introduced <laughs> to me by by the show yeah. that I would later follow up and, and, and check out. So when they were, when the Eternals came on, I was I remember thinking, how do, what does it mean to exist in eternity or across time? And it's the first time I really conceived of the idea of time being. Uh, you know, all happening at once, like the past and the future, are all happening together, and as humans can only perceive it in a linear fashion. Sure. Maybe all the events of your life are all happening or have happened simultaneously, all simultaneously and that's just once. Yeah. So that's how I like to think of the Eternals existing across time. Yeah, yeah. Do you think Davo's a bit harsh on them when he, he figures out what they are and says parasites? Well, I guess technically he's right. Um, but what's really interesting is that I think what they crave is basically entertainment they are empty vessels all powerful and yet at the same time utterly powerless uh, because they don't have a mind of their own they exist beyond the universe and don't really understand it so yes they are parasites but there's an enormous sense of sympathy that i feel for some of them Um, i mentioned um, keith baron striker in particular Mm. he plays it beautifully Uh, it's very underplayed but there's a moment where he talks to the doctor about um he can read his mind and he understands that he's a time lord, a lord of time. Can there be lords in such a small domain? <laughs> it's, it's beautifully done. Uh, and then he contrasts that, I guess, with his first mate, Mariner, who's desperate to experience this universe and latches onto Tegan and mm. these, these you know, strong emotions that from, come from this character. That's incredibly parasitic. But then at that moment where I suppose he sort of dissipates at the end of part four, yeah. you do feel a little bit sorry Sad. for him because, mm. he, I mean... 
that's just the nature of the Eternals. Um, they look for meaning beyond themselves. And that's a, that's a, quite a tragic and sort of heartbreaking existence. I love that imagination is like a, mm. a prized commodity or something to be desired. Yeah. They've elevated it. And um, it, seemed, it always seemed to me like that they don't take anything away. It's just something that they feed off of, like, you know, the, by proximity to. And I love that. I love Christopher Brown playing Mariner, who plays it right <laughs> on the edge of super creepy. Oh yeah. yeah, right on right on the edge there. No, there are undertones there for yeah. sure, totally. aren't there? Oh, I think he's beyond creepy. <laughs> <laughs> when he's looking at the ta- at the TARDIS scanner and looking at T, well, he can't see her, of course, mm-hmm. but he's on oh, the scanner. That's right. That first moment when the hands go on the scanner yeah. uh, on the scanner screen, I love that moment, and that's never. I don't think it's ever been done before. Maybe I'm no. wrong, but wow, what a great idea, and it looked amazing. Yeah, with that huge face. <laughs> but he's always so pleasant. He's always kind of smiling, he's even very, when he's well. He's an Edwardian gentleman sailor, well, isn't he? He doesn't realize what he's doing is. is um, super weird, <laughs> I guess. But here's the thing I like about the the Eternals; they're all quite different. Mm-hmm. Striker and Mariner are the captain and first first yeah. mate, yeah. and and they're quite different to each other. Rack is different again. Oh, if we got to meet so the other good. captains and so on, they'd be doing different things, yep, maybe definitely. a different personality. So it's not like they're the one kind of thing looking for the one experience. Yeah. They're, they're all quite different. I love Rack and oh. her, how Rack and her crew are kind of a bullion, larger than life pirates. Um, played by Rack, played by uh, Linda Barron, <laughs> who was on EastEnders for a long time, and, uh, and which, which totally fits because that's totally her character. And open all hours. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, Nurse Gladys Emanuel. And she's just she's maybe my favorite character in this because she's just having the best time. <laughs> she really like she wants is. enlightenment. She's enjoying the race, but she like the actress is obviously having the time of her life. <laughs> she chews the scene. She gets to talk oh, yeah. directly to Cameron for one of yes. the, the cliffhangers. <laughs> you know. That doesn't happen often. She's wonderful, and like without her, I think you'd be left. You would be left with the idea that all Eternals are sort of um, stayed buttoned down Edwardian types. When in fact, there's a range. Yeah, and, and those three are wonderful, but there's one who isn't so wonderful. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about Lee <laughs> Jones, the lead singer from uh, British pop group Imagination. Who Dan? Did they have success in the charts? Three top ten hits in the UK oh in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. He's it was that easy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's not brilliant in this, is he? He's okay. He's all right. He's 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 not. He hasn't got a huge role. He doesn't have a lot to he do. He doesn't have a huge range. Either. There are a couple. Yeah, there are a couple of couple of lines there that they're a bit off. But yeah, he's, I, I'm I'm entertained. Definitely entertained by the whole pirate crew. My favorite part actually of the pirate crew is when they host the party on Rack's ship, oh, it's and it's like an Adam and the Ants video. Like there's even <laughs> yes. the music's even a little bit like Susie and the Bench, like Susie, you know. Um, Hong Kong Garden, a little bit, it's just a little bit like that. But it's just a great, great fun with all these great costumes. And that's what we said before, the BBC does period costumes well. So this is a perfect opportunity for them to bust out the wardrobe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and not just costumes, but the sets too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. They look lavish, don't they? They actually look like Edwardian sailing ships and the uh, sort of you know, well, buccaneer sort of style um, uh, sailing ship, pirate ships as well. Totally, and that's why the first episode, the first um, the first part is maybe my favourite because you spend the whole thing. You know, I've seen it so many times, so I, you know, you know, you know what's going to happen but the, the whole time that you think they're, they're on a sailing ship and it's very claustrophobic and um uh you're down with the crew and they spend a lot of time down there and you're like great great this is fantastic we've never done a sailing ship before i'm, I'm down i'm down with this and then you go upstairs and you find out they're in space and what a great reveal like mm. the the sailing ships in space like it fits so well with the, all the other ideas in the show i just love that that's a backdrop and the first principle that they start from. What a great idea. Yeah. And everything else flows from that, which I love. Mm. Yeah. My my vibe on the first episode is 
that the episode not only goes very fast but is very mysterious yeah yeah and that mystery actually continues into the second episode yeah. even when you know they're in space there's still a great mystery as to what exactly is is going, going on. on yeah you know and it doesn't really start to come together until halfway through maybe the third episode and into the fourth so mm. the story is really well paced yeah really mm-hmm. keeps you interested it's snappy like uh we said we've talked so many times on our show about the episode three filler which is like sort of going from place to place <laughs> and trying to fill in that time for four episodes but this one is just like through and through it's pretty great pretty snappy but then there's the sort of it's where we get to sit back and rest like the party yeah definitely I think um, one of the other key aspects of this in terms of the way that the narrative sort of unfolds uh, is the Turlo subplot as well so obviously um, I don't know whether this would have been written by Barbara Clegg or whether it given, was given to her given by. to her as part of the trilogy mm-hmm. but I mean uh, the the way in which Turlo seems to be uh, in the thrall of the Black Guardian over this not just this story but the previous two stories as well mm-hmm. Um, and you're never quite sure which way he's going to jump. Sure. You know, he, he obviously jumps overboard to try and be free of the Black Guard, and that's how much of a, um, I suppose, you know, a weight it is on his shoulders. But then he's captured by, by Rack, um, rescued by Rack, and he seems to have, you know, changed allegiance from the Doctor to Rack at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of the time asking, I was like, is he actually going, does he actually want the power? Is he actually going with Rack, mm-hmm. or is this a to get away from the Guardian or is he going to go with the Doctor I just think he makes him a really complex character which as companions maybe they don't really always have that depth to them not a lot of internal conflict like in in the Mm -hmm. preceding two stories especially in Mordrin Undead and also but also Terminus which we will never speak of on the show (laughs) Uh, but in Mordrin he starts out with that conflict and he talking about how the Doctor's a good guy and he doesn't really want to do what he has to do mm. and just to one, kill the Doctor yeah kill him and he gets the chance but then when we get to Enlightenment he's um, he's still so conflicted yeah. there's almost a vibe that he's making it up as he goes along mm. you know there's a scene where he gives the Doctor up and you think is he really giving him up or is this part of a, a yeah. bigger <laughs> ruse that he's trying to pull here like he's going to give the Doctor up then he might go and rescue him or something you know is he, is he still with the Doctor is he not oh I don't know Yeah. and that, that that's his portrayal I think is so so good it keeps you guessing I agree definitely yeah. I mean how that resolves is something that we'll come to a bit later on but it, I am I am absolutely convinced by Turlo that he is in turmoil mm. and cannot make up his mind up until the very last yeah, second. Yeah. And that's wonderful to see. And so many of the things he does kind of makes you loathe him, which mm. I really yeah. enjoy. Like it's something <laughs> I really, always really enjoyed. Love hating Turlo because I mean, you meant to, you meant to not yeah. to like him. Like Tegan, like Tegan's us, you know, she doesn't trust him. Yeah, that's true. She doesn't even know the things that we know and she doesn't trust him. Mm. So, I just want to go back to the Eternals for a second. Um, and one of the things that I really enjoy about this um, this story is the way in which they so wholeheartedly and even slavishly adopt to the, adapt to the rules of um, what it is that they're playing the mm-hmm. game that they're playing. So um, you know there are even for you know supposedly powerful beings like these limitations that they've set upon themselves for no other reason by the way than it would be uninteresting and boring to be break a, those. It rules. wouldn't be pleasantly diverting. Yeah, exactly right. Which I think is such a great idea. Yeah. Is that line, this is the kind of excitement that makes eternity bearable. Yeah, and that's from um, Keith Barron again, a striker, mm. isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I believe that. 
I mean, here's a moment, just a moment of, of, of excitement and adventure in amongst the wastes of eternity in which they exist. I love that they, uh, yeah, you know, wholeheartedly take on the, the rules of the, of the race and, and mm. their roles also in terms of, you know, one's an Edwardian sailing ship, the other's a pirate, you know, others are Greek sort of uh, uh, trireme, etc. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think that really appeals to my sense of uh, fair play. <laughs> That's right. There's a trireme with like oars that are being rowed. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just trying to imagine the, uh, the slaves in the galley at the bottom probably like <laughs> yeah, rowing they away. Would be, That's yeah. horrible. <laughs> uh, and of course, for me, it sort of um, uh, triggers off in my mind memories of the, the bored Olympian gods yeah. who, you know, always interfering in human affairs totally. because it's pretty lonely and windswept and boring up there on Olympus. Gods are always bored, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think that's a beautiful message. You know, it's like we have these stories of gods and demons and eternals and whatever else. Mm, but the real action is, you know, happens within the span of a, of a human life. Mm. Uh, and it, it looks, it's just such a good looking story. Like there's, there's even like we watched, I uh, uh, watched with Steve last night, the special edition, which I've never seen before, which it's was really in, interesting. Yeah. But even the old ones, like the old sailing ships, I still thought they were pretty good, but the but the whole thing looks looks great. Yeah, uh, that that one sailing ship that's got to be like tissue paper, yeah. weakly blowing at the front of it. <laughs> I love it <laughs> while the rest of the sails are static. Love it. Yeah, it's a, it's good fun. But you know, the lighting in this story is just fantastic. From the first yeah. scene where we're in the TARDIS, the lighting is turned down. It doesn't look glorious. It looks fabulous, and this is something Peter Davison talks about on the extras. But just in general, when you think of eighties Doctor Who, one mm-hmm. of the big complaints is about the lighting think of the happiness patrol people say if you turn the lighting down how amazing would that look Mm. yeah peter davison often makes the the joke that all the the bbc would say don't turn it down because an old lady might think a tv's on the blink or something (laughs) i think he says on the commentary but so what (laughs) because it does look good when they do it there are scenes where turlo i think there's a scene with racky this is on a ship obviously not not the tardis but the the lighting on the ships is the same his face goes fully into shadow for Mm. a couple of seconds you don't even see him and then half of his face comes out of the shadow it's like this doesn't normally happen on Doctor Who. This looks really fantastic. Yeah. The scene where Tegan is with, I think it's when Tegan is with um, with Rack and her face is lit from either side from behind, but the front of her face is in darkness. Mm. So it's, yeah, there's lots of little examples like that. I, I do agree, like the, a lot of the 80s stuff is a little overly, little well lit. Definitely. too well lit. And, yeah. yeah. And when they're on the decks of the ships, obviously they're in space, yeah. uh, in a studio in Ealing, I think they, they film mm. those. It's very black apart from, you know, little bits of lighting mm. coming. Well, you'd expect that, wouldn't you? Because there's a single source of light from the sun yeah. and that would be coming in one direction. It wouldn't be coming in all directions mm. like the BBC sort of light gantry would have if, in the studio. If they're in a solar system, are they in a solar system? The, uh, oh, of the course they are. Our, our, our mm. solar system. Let's yeah. cut that out. Okay, all right. This <laughs> made me sound smarter. <laughs> Um, and yeah, just the the we talked about the set before, but like the just the idea of Edwardian sailors and and buccaneer pirates uh, wearing spacesuits, just <laughs> melding those two together. I love that when they when there's when they're up on the deck, making someone walk the plank, and some of them are just in pirate gear, and some of them are wearing spacesuits. Those spacesuits, by the way, are, are cool. I like them. Yeah. They have to people have to tilt their head back a little if they want to look <laughs> yeah. under the visor. I love that. It's great. Uh, should we talk about Rack's ship and her method of destruction? Yeah, I think it's a pretty good idea. It's, cool. uh, it's 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 a gift, isn't it, that she gives to the to each of the um, other contestants in the race. There's a little in jewel, the form of a red jewel, a little jewel on the hilt of the sword that she sends to the one of the ships. And yeah, then she's yeah. got the little plastic ruby that she puts into Tegan's tiara. Tiara, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. When we first see it, it's the Greek guy's got it. I think he's wearing it as a ring. Mm, and the yeah. doctor says, oh, that's out of place for, for, his, right, for yeah. his gear. And, and you know, Strike says, well, you'll have to ask him about it. 
the first time I saw that, I thought Stryker knew what it was and was saying, oh, you'll have to ask him Ooh, about it because I know yeah, what it right. is, but you'll have to ask him. Yeah. But he doesn't know what it is at all because mm-hmm. obviously it's going to be used to trick him later in well, the story. He's, he's a, he would never stoop so low. He's an upper-class Brit. Well, he's playing an upper-class Brit. It's not sporting. <laughs> I just love when the doctor's like, it must be on the ship somewhere. It must be a gift. I, it must be about this big, cheap, made of plastic, crappy red thing, I'm, I assume. Yeah, when he says this big and he holds his fingers, yeah. about, how does he know it's that big? Because <laughs> you can only focus those kinds of energies on cheap plastic jewelry. Ah, I see. <laughs> he knows that. That's like yeah. a, that's a universal law. I love when, he's, when, he, when he tries to smash it and then the, the, all the pieces glow with the same intensity. I love that. It's a great, great little idea. Yeah, and I love the way in which Rack sort of channels the energy of yeah. the Black Guardian in the vacuum shield room yeah. underneath the uh, the bows of the ship there. The disembodied head, and when her face is split into that kaleidoscope of Rack's Yeah, I because love the, the actual sort of uh, ruby itself has sure. been split, yeah. um, smashed up by the Doctor. It just looks so great. But, but in that scene when Davo says we have to pick it up, we've all been there, haven't we? Like yeah. at a party when we've spilled peanuts sure. on the floor or yeah. something, it's like, oh, we've got to clean these up, and everyone starts picking them up with the little pieces of peanut. <laughs> it's, like, it's sort of like that. But my question is, why not just throw the rug overboard? Yeah, pick yeah. Up, we, were, we were actually yelling at the TV <laughs> yeah. last night. We're like, pick it's up true. the rug. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, so there, so Rack, she's, I mean, she's chasing enlightenment like all the others. Yeah, and it's interesting in terms of her villainy because obviously she is the villain and the main sort of agent of the Black Guardian here in this story. She does resort to, you know, tricks and, and breaking yeah. the rules. She's, she's not above... Um, or, or even below <laughs> the the idea that enlightenment is such a big prize that she will do anything that it takes to, to get it because obviously she's an agent of the Black Guardian oh, I love my, one of my favourite lines from the whole story is when she's talking about enlightenment and she says those who get enlightenment will get whatever they desire and I desire to be amused yeah. <laughs> so good I love it yeah um, yeah, she's not above resorting to um, to trickery, and it, uh, that's the point where, right at the end when um, two people get thrown overboard. When Turlo, it seems like Turlo is finally chosen to betray the Doctor, yeah. and you see those two bodies flung out of the the ship. That's that was a chilling moment of two people being thrown into space. Uh, I just thought that was a great bait and switch because <laughs> you know it's not going to be the Doctor and Turlo like everyone. You know, the Doctor doesn't die, but. Um, just for a minute, just to entertain that notion a little bit, it was really interesting and it was really fun. Well, the thing is, a villain of that caliber, you'd expect to have a proper death scene. So you're not thinking that it would be oh, her good either. Good point, Rob. Yeah. You know, because normally, you know, you would see something, mm. you know, but her death scene is is off camera. Yeah. Essentially, well, it's on camera because it's two little bodies. Yeah. Right? You can't <laughs> see what they are. I'm very grateful they didn't, because um, he never really explained how they got how it became Rack and um, Rack and a crewman who got thrown out. Possibly by the Doctor uh, or Turlo. Well, it definitely was. And I'd like to think it was Turlo who, using the oh, element of surprise, turn, so. turns on <laughs> turns on Rack and Lee Jones. Yeah. <laughs> uh, squeezing him through the tiny hole in the floor. Yeah, yeah. Just bash, bashing them down through it. Get yeah. through that hole. Oh, what I particularly like about that scene as well, um, and it occurs throughout, is that sort of mournful, soft music. Yeah, the music. Once you see the body sort of floating out into space. Yeah. And actually, the music in general here is actually pretty good. You know, there's, it's very 80s, don't get me wrong, and it's, it's quite sort of like uh, jaunty in places, particularly with like uh, the first episode where you have the sort of Edwardian sailors on the, on the ship and they're going about running about the, the business of, 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 of sailing. Um, but you know, you mentioned earlier. There's that sort of Susie and the Banshees yeah. music in yeah. the in the banquet. Um, I think it it really does add to. And there's that, you know, just sort of soft tinkling kind of um, music every time uh, either enlightenment or the idea or the prize is evoked yeah, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, exactly. It's a refrain that sort of just hints at what that that final mystery is that's going to be waiting for them at the port mm-hmm. when the when they um, sort of embark and. 
the final prize is bestowed upon them. The port, it's brilliant. It's just that giant sort of chandelier thing. Is it explained? Is that ever explained? I always miss this stuff. I don't think it needs to be, does it? Because, you know, we're talking about ethereal beings from beyond time. We're talking about the black and white guardian. So we're talking essentially about metaphysical rather than sort of, you know, actual physical um, uh, concepts and ideas and or places. Um, And there's a part of me that likes to think that this whole thing somewhere exists in someone's mind almost. Yeah. And on top of the the space chandelier is... um, (laughs) A little crystal that looks just like Turlo's Black Guardian crystal. Yeah, that's a good point. Always make me wonder if this is what the Black Guardian was after the whole the whole trilogy. (laughs) Although, although speaking of the metaphysical and so on, I'd like to know when when all the uh, Eternals disappear at the end. Surely the ships have been created by their their minds. Why doesn't the ship disappear? <laughs> oh, good point. Because the crew disappears. Don't, doesn't the crew, the human crew, they disappear first? Mm. Or do they Sent get back? put back to their normal times? I hope so, but the Eternals yeah, don't geez. seem to care about <laughs> no. regular human lives. They're much too, you know, uh, minor a detail, I suppose, oh. in the overall scheme of things. Although I'd like to have had some of the the um, the, the crew we saw in the first episode pop up again later and near the end because there were some great characters well yeah and, and I mean you'd, you'd like to think that they survived and yeah. you know they weren't just sort of cast off into the depths of space these poor Edwardian sol- sailors well mm. that's Eternals and Ephemerals yeah <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you know we, we're at that point where I guess the great mystery of enlightenment you know the titular sort of mystery of the entire four parts is, is finally answered and, and shown to us uh, we arrive at the final port if you like mm. and it's uh, nothing less than enlightenment as a prize on offer which somewhat disappointingly is is uh, symbolized in the form of a, a glowing crystal yeah always a glowing crystal <laughs> it's pretty it's, it's fine that's no worry but we get we get to have a conversation between the two birdhead uh, guardian <laughs> uh, mates uh, valentine dial we get any anytime you get to valentine dial gets dialogue i'm, I'm happy I, yeah. I just love watching him even How if he's got that stupid he, bird on his head. Yeah. Valentine Dial is one of the true immortals of Doctor Who. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> we were, I was just doing a little bit of... Because re- oh, I know I've seen him in some very old things before, but like he, his, his film resume, is in, even before 1950, mm. is insane and more than most actors get in a lifetime. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and also the, the um, Man in Black on, on radio for right. a long, long time as well. Long running Deep grubbly boys. <laughs> He's great. And opposite is, Cyril, is him is Cyril Luckham as the White Guardian. Sure. Much more softly spoken. Yeah. Much more uh, demure, I guess. And yeah, I, I love the contrast between the two of them. Uh, the birds on their heads are always mocked, and you know, Dan, I know you That's don't like they it. Suck. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. But there's you know the black crow as opposed to the the white dove and the symbolism of that. I know I quite like the it. The crow now. works. The dove is just <laughs> weird. It's very silly. Um, but they get to have that conversation, which I love about the light. Oh. The light can't exist without the dark, and that, that's like that's an important lesson for uh, I don't know for kids watching. Like remember, I know when I watched it, there's a few little lessons in this. That you can't you can't ever destroy evil. And this is where for me enlightenment transcends itself from just a normal four part story into just like one of the great moral mm. stories of, of Doctor Who of all time. The Doctor says enlightenment wasn't. The diamond enlightenment was the choice mm. and that is a wonderful mm. gorgeous beautiful i mean we see it in things like the five doctors where uh you know the first doctor wisely uh re- rejects um Rassilon's offer of uh, immortality yeah, because sure. it's a curse yeah. enlightenment similarly godhood if you like the ability to do anything at any time to anyone and it uh, it's just what's the point of it, you know? Uh, that's so. That's so. The doctor. I mean, if and also mm. not only if the doctor accepts immortality or enlightenment, that would be the end of the show. <laughs> but it's also anything that stops him 
being able to continue gallivanting around the universe he's, yeah. not, he's not having a bar of it yeah and and the moral dimension of that For is sure. uh again echoing of the greek you know there are uh, a number of uh stories you know concerning you know mortals who dare to arrogate unto themselves the powers of the immortals mm. that is not humanity's lot we yeah. belong on the earth uh, finite time we belong you know in the presence of other mortals, not, uh, you know, I guess, on Olympus. Even though he's a Time Lord, the Doctor still knows his place, which yeah. is very British. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that choice, uh, there's two choices there. There's one where the Doctor chooses not to take enlightenment, and also Turlo finally chooses oh. not to betray the Doctor by, like, uh, you know, just he just means to smash the crystal away, but it happens to also coincidentally sort of seem to destroy the Black Guardian. But that's a that's another choice. So there's, there's lots of lessons in there in this it's like you can't have uh, the light without the dark mm-hmm. you should choose your friends over over, <laughs> over profit mm-hmm. don't let creepy sailors feed <laughs> off of your imagination and never trust a bird head <laughs> this is true um i think though the great uh part of this is the way in which davison's doctor is distilled in about a five minute section out of all of his stories yeah. this is davison in essence Another doctor, any other doctor, would have made the choice for himself. He mm-hmm. wouldn't have l- delegated, if you like, uh, the decision whether to choose enlightenment or reject it to his companion. I, don't, I can't think of one. It's this one here. It's this doctor who entrusts his own life into even an sure. errant a child as Turlough, who he knows already has tried to kill him. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, I trust you. I, I, I have faith in you to do the right thing. And that... That wonderful sort of trust that the Doctor has in us, the fifth Doctor, that Davison's Doctor has in us, is evident in that moment. Because at that point, Turlo is it's kind of like us. Mm. Like, what would we choose? Would we mm. choose unlimited wealth and power and immortality? Or would we choose to do what the Doctor does, which is to reject all those notions of, you know, uh, being above uh, our station, I guess. <laughs> and to forgive, which is like something yeah. I'm not sure other Doctors would do so so easily. And you're yeah. right, like you do get the feeling that he know he knew the doctor knew all the time about i think the, so yeah you've always said that you felt that yeah I, th- I think he does i think he's cleverer than perhaps um you know some people are suggesting where he sort of bumbles into things or is, is, is a bit wet if you like or whatever um i think he's smart enough to realize that turlo's out for him but he's trying to save him it's a very fifth doctor thing to do to let let it play out and let let him make the right choice himself yeah. rather than you know um, ballsing through and making it happen yeah. yeah it's certainly uncommon I think it may be Capaldi and Kill the Moon letting Clara make oh, her choice call. yeah good yeah. call but yep. it's very very uncommon yeah you know and I do like how up until this point the Fifth Doctor hasn't really known that Turlo and the Black Guardian are in cahoots no sure it all sort of comes out in the wash and he just mm, okay you know <laughs> you almost get this sense that he maybe had a thought that maybe that was going on yeah <laughs> you know because he does take it pretty well <laughs> Yeah, well, you can read it. To, you can read it that way too. I mm. mean, yeah, you, you can read it that he's just he's just cottoning on now, and um, that's possible yeah. too. Yeah, because you can see that in Davis's performance when he's standing there, you can I see th- that he's just cottoning on and thinking, "What have I done?" Mm. <laughs> no, but for me, the thing that makes it, and, we, and talking about Davis and the actor, we've said before just how he never stops acting, even when the camera's not on him, oh. even when he's in the background, <laughs> even when the script isn't good. <laughs> yeah. he never phones it in. He always yeah. gives it. He does. Uh, it, but for me, it's that moment where he stands impassively, almost as though he's not acting. He's obviously containing himself as Turlo is battling within to make this decision, to make this choice. And it's beautiful. You, you just know that this doctor has such a trust in his companion that he's, and forgiveness as well that he's able to say to Turlo, you know what, you make the call. I believe in you. And that's a beautiful message. <laughs> that's Davison's doctor right there. Random question. 
when when the doctor runs around the decks and up and down the same flight of stairs a few times to get to the <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. the main deck, he gets outside and then collapses in the most dramatic yeah. fashion, like oh, it's yeah. Caves of Androzani or something. Or, or almost as if there's no oxygen up there. Or that's what that's what I thought. But there was oxygen. Yeah. Or well, if, or it's cold like space. Could be. Which yeah didn't seem to be right I, either. I I guess I thought it was the oxygen bubble or whatever around the ship had been dispersed because mm. they no longer have the the mortals up top. Yeah, the crew above. But then they were the, they were on deck with um in episode one they were they were going up in um space sh- space suits and the pirates some pirates on rack ships some of them are like we said before some of them are suited some of them aren't when they're up when they're aloft i guess the unsuited ones would be the eternals and oh, the other ones be, would yeah. be the uh, the good humans call. so i'm guessing that there isn't an oxygen bubble at least at that point in time when he goes up there because mm. we see him earlier uh, he and tegan on the deck and they're wearing the the suit so maybe you're right yeah he's sort of exposing himself as capaldi does in, in um, yeah. oxygen to to the perils of space I did wonder. Yeah, that's a good point, Rob, yeah, actually. Yeah. I didn't pick up on that. Although the masks may also be a precaution. There might even be a line about them uh, being a precaution. I think you're right. Mariner yeah. pops his off and then pops Tegan's mm. off at Oh, that's stage. true too, yeah. I say it's a precaution in case, in case the integrity of the bubble yeah, something happens. something like that. So it must be that that oxygen bubble at that point isn't... isn't in in order yeah it's, it's just confusing because I think he's followed by people who aren't yeah. wearing suits and they're fine maybe it's just <laughs> yeah. something that was, maybe it's just something they missed I'm not sure oh. alright Rob we'll hope you, we hope you'll indulge us uh, in our, one of our segments we like to do on our show it's called Cliffhangers Crackers or Clangers <laughs> I can't wait <laughs> here we go alright so we've talked about it before but it is part, the end of part one and it's that great twist where obviously on board an Edwardian sailing ship, everything to date has suggested that we are aloft on the sea somewhere. But of course, an electronic panel slides back and, and Tegan says... Tegan reminds us over and over again, the electronics on an Edwardian on an sailing Edwardian. ship? Yeah, yeah we, we get it. <laughs> and of course, at that point, it's the men underneath who in their spacesuits mm. go up top. And of course, it's not the high seas. Yeah. It's space. What do we think, Rob? Cracker, yeah, definite cracker. <laughs> Whether it's some special edition or not special edition, I still love the old, the old screen coming up and then the ships with the with the fluttering sails. Yeah, it's great. I love it because it's never hinted. You don't get yeah. the idea. It's if first time you're watching this, it is just comes as a total surprise, and I love that. Tegan sees the wets. She calls them wetsuits, and I'm not sure if those are the spacesuits or if mm. they're just different wetsuits. But yeah, she's, there's that one little hint, but it's nothing. There's no way you're going to be prepared for the fact. No, that it's I space because you're just not it. thinking that way at all. Yeah, killer. So the end of part two, Turlo, I guess in a moment of absolute panic and a realisation that he's never going to escape the Black Guardian, shouts into space that he want, he would basically be free of him and then just tosses himself overboard. And part of me is like, do it. Yeah, please, <laughs> go, go, go. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty and it's pretty frantic. Like and he, he climbed, I think the Black Guardian was telling him that he will never leave the ship. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he'll always be a part of the crew, uh, which is pretty terrifying. So yeah, he just throws himself out there, and that's the. I mean, it's a suicide, right? It's an yeah, attempted it's suicide, which is I don't think I've ever seen on Doctor Who before. Um, this one's uh, this one's fine. It doesn't 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 blow me away, but it's a, it's pretty unprecedented and pretty dark. So I'll mm. call it a uh, a cranger. I'm going to say clangor, (laughs) and I'll tell you why. Oh, please. Normally in Doctor Who cliffhangers, something happens, and we think, oh, boy, look at that happening, and then it's resolved Hmm. in the next episode. Here, we see him get on the railing cliffhanger. Yeah. 
in the next episode, we then see him jump and fly off into oh. space, which is far more dramatic. And that actually happens in the next episode. I didn't realize. Point, yeah. oh, the second half I watched with Steve was the special, the special so I didn't realize that wasn't. <laughs> if, if, if he climbed onto the railing and then launched into space, sure. and he's falling back into space, wonderful. Oh, that's M- massive cracker. Definitely been it. But that's he doesn't. A really good point. He actually gets on the railing, and the doctor might say something like, "Don't be stupid." And then it's off into the theme music. That's, we don't actually see him fall into space. And it's only a second or two, so it can't be a time thing. It must be a, like a, like a choice. Yeah. It's weird. Maybe no. they maybe they didn't want to end it with a, a suicide. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's too much. They were like, just oh, do it. Oh, that's possible, yeah, you know. Could yeah. be a, um, worried about yeah. senses kind of a thing. Maybe that's too long a period to leave viewers whilst they're sort of basically assume that Turlow's dead is is committed suicide Mm. so maybe that is a bit dark for BBC and that's why but you're right in this day and age we'd probably actually have seen Turlow float you know throw himself overboard and and, and flung through space yeah I'm I love the idea perhaps as you say Rob the execution just needed that but maybe I understand why the BBC mm, didn't do it. He gets up on the rail. You think, oh, well, next week he's going to get down off the rail. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah but he actually. doesn't. The dramatic thing happens the week after. Yeah, it's yeah. Yeah. very weird. Arena. <laughs> Part three, aboard Rack's ship, Tegan has been sidelined, if you like, by Rack and time frozen for her as Rack implants a red crystal into her tiara. Clanger. Yeah, <laughs> going straight to Clanger. I think it's a Clanger, but it's creepy. I love uh, that. I love for the idea of Frozen Tegan and the fact that this Eternal can just wave a finger and uh, she's frozen. Yeah, and there's the director camera sort of breaking the fourth wall bit as well, which is kind of nice. But really, is it is it great, Rob? Yeah, when she looks at the camera and says, all that waits awaits is your ultimate destruction. <laughs> it's just chewing the scenery. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's a Clanger for me. Yeah. Can I ask you this question, Rob, though? What would have been a better cliffhanger from part four if you could rejig the script? I think for me, and tell me if I'm wrong, the way in, uh, at the point at which Linda Barron's character, Captain Rack, channels the Black Guardian sure. energy through that red crystal probably would have been a far more dramatic race against time kind of the focus, cliffhanger. focus part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially when she splits into, into, into all those different parts. I think that's the moment. Yeah. When he realises that he can't. Absolutely. Smashing it's not going to help. That yeah. could have been it. Yeah, no, uh, we we just know better, I suppose. We just we just yeah, we're just telling the the writers and the directors of the show yeah. how they could have done it better. I Sorry, mean, there's that line. There's that early line. The doctor says saying like she's channeling evil or something, and it's like, oh wow, yeah, yeah. okay, you that know. would have been far more impressive, I think, and maybe particularly if they had the reveal that it was the Black Guardian that she was communing with at that point. Yeah, because that kind of just gets doesn't really get given the the moment. It sort of gets. It's just there it. for a moment. And, and you're then, like, oh, she's yeah. with the Black... Cool, okay. All right, yeah. I guess that's fine. Whereas I think because we know that Turlo's with the Black Guardian and he's that's why he's present in the story. But if he's also in the story mm. because of Rack, I think that would be far more yeah. of, yeah. A, of playing, a narrative payoff. Playing all the playing all the pieces. Kind yeah, of thing. yeah. So it's for that reason I think I'm going to go clang on this Oh, one. it's a clang. I mean, it's a clanger. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Cool. <laughs> 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 all right. Part four, we've already talked about it to a degree because I guess it's that moment right at the end where Turlow has uh, chosen the Doctor over Enlightenment and, and thereby, I guess, chosen the Doctor over the Black Guardian and in the process has freed himself from yeah, the, the contract, contract that he's entered into way back in Mordred and Undead. Um, there's that beautiful eternal moment for me, and I, I guess I didn't mean that pun, but <laughs> where, where the Doctor says in a very plaintive voice, in a way that Davison beautifully underplays it. He says, Enlightenment wasn't the diamond, Enlightenment was the choice. You know, he says to Tegan that she was missing the point. 
uh, and then Tolo asks to go home and we never get to go to his home, <laughs> but that's yeah. another matter. <laughs> but let's ignore that last line. Let's, let's sort of take that end of part four as, as a totality. Mm. What do we think? What's the last thing that Davison says right before the sting? Why not? Yeah. yeah, but he says it. I love how he sort of says it with a shrug and a sigh. He's like, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I'm done with this. Let's go. Yeah, There's great. a few Davo endings like that, aren't there? Isn't there one there where are. Tegan says, you're stuck with me or something? And he's, he's pretty nonplussed about it. I can't, I can't recall. I like There's his, a few, yeah. I like, he, I like when, he, when he underplays. He's great. Yeah, he does it well. What do we think? Cracker, clanger? Broadly, cracker. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. the last line. Right? Oh, the last line's terrifying. Yeah. I, I like the exhausted <laughs> delivery. Uh, I'm gonna, it's a clacker for me, so it's not quite a cracker or a clanger. Well, I'm, I'm going to cut the tape 30 seconds short, and I'm going to leave it at that moment where the doctor explains, I guess, the moral of the story to Tegan, oh, that she's yeah. missing the point. And that, to me, is not just a cracker. It's an all-time beautiful moment mm. in Doctor Who. It's the moment where the fifth doctor, I guess, can be distilled in apotheosis. It's the moment where the fifth doctor... Uh, sort of rebels against that sort of grim gun narrative that we see under the Sayward stewardship sure. as, as script editor. It's that moment where we see the fifth doctor, the sweet, beautiful fifth doctor, um, inhabit a story that is itself sweet and beautiful. Mm. So 30 second shortcut, I'm going to go cl- absolute cracker. For sure. You're right. Like this does seem like a story that's uniquely suited to Davison and it's like it sort mm. of amplifies his strengths. It does, And it's it? just a, such a nice story for him to be in and yeah. it works so well. And I wish we'd gotten more of it, well, to be honest. Yeah. So we said previously, Rob, that uh, Davison is definitely your doctor. And whilst I don't have a favourite, I mean, there's a point in time and an important point in my time where Davison certainly was my doctor and I can't ever forget that. Mm. We've seen a story here where I guess his strengths as um, not a weak doctor but a very different Doctor to the others is is very much highlighted through a story that is itself tailored towards, I guess, a, a softer uh, approach to storytelling than perhaps the sort of Sayward uh, gun or grim kind of way. Do you think that it succeeds as a story? Do you think that Enlightenment actually does provide that opportunity for Davison to shine? Or is it a bit of an aberration in the rest of the context of, of Davison's era? Oh, I think variety is the spice of life. So it's wonderful <laughs> to have a story like this, you know, and it, it does help him shine in, in certain ways. But, you know, when you talk about the grim stories, I think they also bring out his doctor because the way his doctor reacts to the grimness around him, mm-hmm. you, you, you can see in those stories too. So they're, they're not home goals by any means. But, yes, this is a different kind of story. It does let him play to, to those strengths and it... It's, it's lovely. It is lovely. You know, as, we, as I've watched it in the past couple of days and as we've spoken about today, yeah, this really is one of the more lovely stories, I think, <laughs> yeah. in his Doctor. And in terms of Davison's importance to you on a personal level, um, how do you think his three years sort of panned out? Did we think we got to see the best of him? No. Yeah. No, I, I really don't. Because this comes from a season that when, on, again, on our podcast, when we discussed his era... This was our least favourite of his seasons. Agreed. Sure. You know, even though it's got some great stories in it like this one. Generally, no. And then by the time he's really starting to swing into his prime and his form, he's uh, he's going out the door. Mm, yeah. And not even getting a full series. And, you know, Colin's taking over his last story and all of yeah. that. <laughs> you know, another another season of Davison would have been tantalising. And In fact, I've got this um, old copy of Zorinza which used to be the, the Doctor Who fan club's uh, sort of their longer format newsletter. They had okay. data extract, but they also did these Zorinzas, which were more like little magazines. I've got one from when he toured here. 
and there's there's commentary in it because he was on his way out they knew he was on the way out at that time even though they hadn't seen his final series and they were saying stuff in that and this is contemporary this isn't retro retro looking back you know peter davison might might not need doctor who but doctor who needs peter davison and people were saying that here in this country in that zarinza fanzine at the time so it's, it's not even something we're sort of inventing mm. in the modern era. Mm. People were saying it at the time. You can go back and see that. So, yeah, I, yeah. I would have loved another season of Davo. Can, can I give you my fantasy three years of Peter Davison? <laughs> and that is that Christopher H. Bidmead stayed on oh. for season 19. <laughs> and then in season 20 and 21 at least, Chris Boucher comes back <laughs> off Blake 7 and takes the script editorship there. I think we would have seen a very, very different era. We don't, I don't think we would have seen a different Doctor. I think Davison brings so much yeah. of that gentleness to the character, but I think you would have thrived under those two. Yeah, stories. Um, and far more so, I guess. Stories and characters and maybe not background in the Doctor as much as he gets, because Davison gets backgrounded quite a bit. Yeah. Boucher can still write some pretty tough stuff, though. I, I think you're right. And maybe it goes back to that point that you said about variety being you know, the spice of life and having that the contrast between them. So I guess I look at Earthshock, and I love it. And I love it because it is so different to, I guess, what we see uh, in the rest of season 19. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's Sayward doing something fresh and new. I guess my, my issue is that um, when Sayward does do what he likes to do, it's kind of like a repeat or a rehash of the previous one. So Resurrection of the Daleks, mm-hmm. for instance, on itself, by itself, grim, challenging type of story. But is it any different to Earthshock? There's lots of gun, like gun battles that go on and on. And yeah, and you know, lots of innocent deaths innocent, and all the rest like of it. Lots of people dying. And a companion leaves, mm. you know, one way or another in both of those stories. Mm. It's almost as though traveling with the Doctor is not just a chore; it's dangerous and just not a not a pleasant experience at all. Mm. I, I guess I, I think you're right to say that you know, the light and the dark, kind of like in this story of the black and white guardian, sure. need to coexist to mm. bring out that that lightness in the Doctor. Mm. I think, though, in terms of enlightenment, what we see is an alternate take on what we may have seen more of during Davison and allowed him more of an opportunity to shine in these kinds of stories than perhaps, you know, in the likes of, say, Terminus or Time mm-hmm. Flight. Well, we could do these lovely what-ifs all day, but I think what we should do is uh, we should pass over to Bridget and find out well, for this, for enlightenment, what did Bridget think? Now it's my turn. Okay, Bridget, hi. Hi. You, you've joined us once again. Yeah, boy. We, we've dragged you kicking and screaming to the couch once again to watch a classic Doctor Who Enlightenment. Yes. Uh, fifth Doctor, Peter <laughs> Davison. Nice. What a sweet, lovely dude. Did yeah, you like him? Yeah, he's good. So, he reminds me of that guy, Tim from the Goodies. He's uh, got the same hair. You're a big Tim. You're a big Goodies person, aren't you? Who isn't? That is a good thing. Yeah, he's like nice. What did you like about him? It's better than the other guy who I had to watch last week who sucked. Oh, you mean... He was, he was really mean. John Pertwee. Yeah, yeah he, he's he, just nicer. Right, so you're like a so nice... So, like, he's just better than that guy. He's not the best one, in my opinion. Who's the best one? Let's say, you want to go, go over it again? Um, well, my ultimate favourite is Eccleston. And because he's babe, controversial. <laughs> no, it's a terrible. And also, is wait, it? wait, 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 wait. The reason you like Eccleston is because he's a babe. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think many people are arguing for him in that capacity. Also, I kind of like uh, he was a little bit serious, but then also kind of like silly all at the same time. Like he could just snap. He's like unpredictable. I like him. You like his big ears? Because he did it first, and he had the hardest job. You know, first of the new series. But yeah, Tom Baker obviously is the ultimate. Sure. Because he's my childhood doctor. 
And you like doctors that are kind of dead like yeah. and nice. Yeah. And not mean and smug. Who would like a smug and jerky doctor? Well. That's the worst kind of doctor. There's a whole school of thought. The one who's really excited to tell you that you have some like STD. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not taking you down into the deep dark school of thought. Uh, people on the internet about why a nasty doctor is good. Let's not go there. Who cares? Okay. Uh, so enlightenment. Yeah. Four parts, which is uh, pretty good. Uh, good pounding 80s soundtrack. Yeah, that was good. Splitting. Good intro. Yeah, uh, grating. Nice. Grating. Um, and so the story. Uh, you start off uh, on board an Edwardian sailing ship. It's claustrophobic. It's dark. You don't know what's happening. There's a creepy guy trying to get into the TARDIS. The Doctor, blah, 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 stuff about a Guardian, the ship's blowing up. What did you think? Well, first episode I thought, whoa, there's a lot that I don't understand. Because mm-hmm. there was those two like yin and yang dudes just rocking yeah. up and that was completely just out of nowhere for me. And mm-hmm. I didn't really know the backstory of that guy with the fake red hair. It's crap anyway. I was just like, what is going on? Who is this guy? Like, you know, like it didn't set those characters up. So I assumed that they'd be there in previous episodes. You're correct. Because I was like, that this episode one makes no sense. Eh, it's Doctor Who from another time. Of course that's going to happen. So like, I just went with it. Um, episode two was really dull. I fell asleep yes. for like about half of that. You did fall asleep. And then it picked up and it actually got really good and I really enjoyed it. So you enjoyed it? Yeah, I thought it was good. You're right. The backstory doesn't really matter because it sucks anyway. Yeah, but I think knowing about the the sure. dark and the light dudes would have been kind of important. You liked the black guy. I mean, the black guardian's pretty. He's pretty hammy, but you really liked. Uh, you like his cackling, didn't you? I loved it. He's great. Yeah, it was good. But there's a lot of uh, characters you've never seen before, like Tegan, the uh, the Australian companion. What did you think of Tegan? Yeah, she's good. She's kind of pixie-ish, kind of eighties. <laughs> She's very pretty. I like her accent because kind of like mine. I identify with it. So, so right I like it. their blatant grab for more Australian viewers. Yeah, <laughs> I think it actually works. I'm in. So you sold. You, you relate to Tegan. You feel a kinship with her because she's from Brisbane. Well, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Yeah. She is pretty great, and uh, and uh, our uh, easily freakoutable, super redhead, wide-eyed, gurning super freak Turlo. You also liked him. Eh. I like how he comes across as kind of evil, but then he kind of did a 180 at the end. But I think his character is completely annoying. And like, what's with the red hair? Like, is it real? I don't know. No, it's actually not real. I didn't know that until uh, this year. But yeah. Oh, it's damn. Fake. Come on. It's false. It's Dude. Not. Yeah. Why not just go for an actor? I, I, like, don't know I like him. I like him when he goes super overham in the in the um, vacuum room. And yeah. He's yeah. Like, I like that Help me. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was into that bit. Uh, and we've got, uh, and, and uh, one of the super creepy characters is uh, Mariner. Whoa, that guy's a super creep. But you really liked him. I don't think he was super creepy at all. I think he was just like, you know, he's one of those like dudes who just doesn't know what love is yet, you know? He fell in love, but he was a being that didn't understand, you know, and he needs her. He needs her to like feel complete, to feel whole, to feel experience love. He needs her and oh. that like deep yearning. Is appealing to me. Ah. I didn't think that one day someone would love me in that way. So, what about the story? Did you did you enjoy? Like the there's the uh, sailors in spacesuits. You've got uh, Adam Ant pirates having a, a an eighties party. The thing I liked about it was I thought, man, that's a pretty cool prize, enlightenment. And imagine if that could be something you could actually battle for. 
And like, that's kind of appeal, appealing, you know, because that, that's like a life's journey. It's just like, you don't need to take that journey. You just win enlightenment as a prize. Yeah. Like, uh, well, only if you're really good at sailing in space. Which is ridiculous, right? Well, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it is. Ah, the show of your prowess will make you win the most amazing <laughs> prize, spiritual prize. <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense. Just the idea of like what enlightenment would feel like. So, is a good thought. knowing everything, I think it, it means I think yeah. what, what they are getting at is everything that ever, has ever happened or ever will happen. You get to know all of it. I guess it's just a feeling of peace, hmm. which is like. If you really enjoyed going for a race, it wouldn't appeal to you, really. <laughs> you know, like, it's just a stupid prize. So really, the prize is really there. It just, it really only attracts the very small cross-section of people who want to know everything that has ever happened and will happen. And also people who are also really good at sailing. But the thing is, because they're Eternals, they already have the opportunity to spend the rest of time figuring out Enlightenment anyway. So they ultimately... Whether or not they get there faster or slower, they're still on this eternal journey of enlightenment anyway. So it's kind of like their prize is, is a ridiculous joke, I think. Deep. For me, I would really like to win that prize because then I can just like go, you just go straight to whatever God is. That's cool. So what's your what would be your preferred prize to enlightenment? Massages. Oh, just like infinite. No, I, I want enlightenment, but then second massages. So and like, like you'd or want you to can be... eat buffets and stuff, like basic things. Oh, like the 80s food they had at the party? Oh my gosh, that food was so good. Once I found this recipe book, like I don't know where it was. It was like deep, this 80s cookbook. Yeah. It had all these weird gelatin, yeah. like meat gelatin. Everything in those 80s cookbooks is pineapple like... rings and ham and stuff. Everything in those days cookbooks always has like a really dark brown sauce and everything's really shiny. It's because everything's kind of faded and green in the photos too. So it just looks like so bad. But that's what the food looked like yeah, on this classic ship. Classic Delia <laughs> like, Smith smorgasbord. Yeah, like rolled ham and stuff. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, like prawns on, on beds of lettuce. Pirates wouldn't be eating this get up, hey? <laughs> Pirates would not be eating this. It's supposed to be like true of the time. Oh, well. But your preferred prize to enlightenment would be uh, to be an eternal... But you get massages all the time. So just an eternity of massage. Yeah, but I like the Enlightenment Prize. But it seems like it was like, psych, it wasn't really Enlightenment. It was a choice. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> kind of like, it wasn't really an Enlightenment. It was whatever you wanted to be. So like, what even is that? It, I don't know. It, it was a bit... It my brain and goes too deep. It was a bit ambiguous at the end. It's very ambiguous. But then Tolo chose By the, the two most hammy, ambiguous characters in the whole thing. The yin and yang, light and darkness dudes. <laughs> what? What? Why are they running this show? Why do they have birds on their heads? Why do they have birds on their heads? Are they from Earth where birds are a thing? No, they're not. Birds, what? I don't know. Maybe the birds are a symbol of death and life. A dove, you know, like a dove and the raven. I don't know. <laughs> they're funny anyway. And so who, I mean, who was your favorite? Who, what was your favorite part? I mean, who was your favorite character? Was it? Captain Rack? Yeah, she was pretty I'm, good. I'm, I'm projecting now because she was my favorite character. Why don't, was she your favorite feel, character? Because she was just obviously having the most fun out of everyone. She yeah, just she laughed just a lot. Like, I'm going to hand this up. Yeah. Actually, they were all hamming it up. I'm they sorry. Were. I enjoyed that. Who else was hamming it up? All of them. <laughs> all of them except for our main characters. Because sure. they couldn't seem ridiculous in comparison to these hmm. crazy beings. She was hamming it up. I just, she just felt so EastEnders to me, which I love. And um, she was just Once she said that, I couldn't get that out of my head. So it kind of tainted... <laughs> The, the captain for me yeah she really should be like polishing a bar and like solving everyone's problems while also scheming against her rival her arch nemesis you know that's where she is that's where she'll always be for me the joke is that she's so evil and you're like 
the prize of enlightenment. That's actually a good prize for her. She's so evil. She's out there like killing dudes all day. She should win that prize. She needs that. So she can just go away and be enlightened. I mean, you could argue that Don't she... Don't take w- that prize off her. I mean, you could argue that she worked the hardest to get it. You know, she did the most work. She kept planting crap Chilling. plastic jewels on people's ships and blowing people up. You know, it's not easy blowing people up all day. It's difficult. Maybe she deserves the prize. She needs the prize. She she evil. <laughs> she crazy and hammy and she just she directs the camera and she's like, I'm gonna say something outrageous and crazy. And you're gonna love it. So, Bridget, your overall impression of enlightenment. And would you recommend it like to uh someone who's um new to the classic series? Or a partner of someone who wants to watch it? Yeah, I liked it. Yeah. Yeah, I would recommend it. It was better than the other one. Inferno? Oh my gosh. Inferno. <laughs> Worst thing I ever saw in my life. Even in other, even in other episodes of the show, Bridget keeps going back to how bad. Because I feel was. like you traumatized me. <laughs> it was so boring. I, I hurt inside. But yeah, this one's good. You could definitely make your partners sit through it. At least three and four. Part two is right off. <laughs> Put the kettle on for episode two. <laughs> Put a strong coffee pot on. Hey. <laughs> What a very strong one. Something about like I don't know retro Doctor Who that there's a different meter to the to the cuts, and mm-hmm. it just sends me to sleep. I don't know why. Like, and it, it's like the show is great. Characters are funny, and then it's all retro, so it's all like, whoa, look at this amazing synth track. But then it's like there's something in the rhythm of it, especially episode two that lulls you into slumber. That lulls me away to another planet, <laughs> the slumber planet. <laughs> well, there you go. So Bridget's enlightened on the slumber planet. She enjoyed enlightenment. All right, there you have it. There's, uh, that's what Bridget thought. So back to you guys in the, in the studio, and uh, we'll see you next time, Bridget. Focus. And we're back, and oh my God, I can't believe she said that. <laughs> so we asked this of every one of our guests, and we'll ask it of you, Rob. Why should we watch this? Why should anyone watch this? This story in particular, you have to watch for two reasons. One is it's part of a trilogy that I think is worth watching sure. to understand Turlow and where he comes from. Good point. Without watching the trilogy, you, you're really at a loss as to, you know, where he's where he's come from. So it's, Do you reckon you could do Mordrin and then just go straight to Enlightenment? Oh, <laughs> yes, you could. I know why you're asking, but yes, yes you could. <laughs> Um, the other reason to watch it is, as we've been discussing all through this piece, it is such a, a lovely story, tonally different to a lot of Davo's era, mm. and just well worth the watch. It, it's not a story a lot of even Davo fans might put in their sure. top three. Yeah, Maybe not even their top five. Oh, it might squeak into some top fives. But it's not one of those really top tier stories that lots of people talk about, but it is a great story, mm. and it's mm. well worth the watch. Yeah, and for me, it, it's my favourite Davison, I think. Largely because of, I guess, the the way in which it shines against the likes of Caves of Andrasani and Earthshock. It's the at the other end of the spectrum, if you like. And I think that contrast is, is wonderful. It's almost like a, a bit of a reprieve, a little bit of a breather from all the yeah. gun, gunfights and all the death. Yeah. Uh, it's just like a sort of a nice little side story with drama of its own and, and high stakes. But yeah, it's, mm. like, it's like a nice breather for me. Yeah, I love this one. definitely. All right, we're going to continue to share the love here on New to Who. And um, the podcast that we'll be recommending this month is The Complete Menagerie. For classic Doctor Who fans, and I know Rob's a listener too, they provide an irreverent look back on the first 26 years of Doctor Who in their uh, inimitable fashion. You can catch them at DW Menagerie on Twitter. 
So we've come to the end of New to Who for another month and it's come time to thank our guest, Rob Irwin from the Doctor Who Show. Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. It was really fun. Thank you for coming over to Sydney to do it. (laughs) It's it's fantastic to sit in the same room. It's wonderful. It has been, yeah. It's been particularly fun to do that. Um, And could you give us maybe just a bit of an idea of what we can expect maybe on the Doctor Who Show coming up or perhaps where we can find you? Well, you can always find us at the dwshow.net where you can stream episodes, download episodes or find out how to get onto iTunes and, and get things that way. Uh, in terms of what what's coming up, we have some surprises coming up this year. <laughs> Spoilers. Uh, some of them might even involve you chaps, but uh, <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> you can buy the DVD of Enlightenment from BBC Online or buy and download the episode from iTunes. You can follow New to Who on Twitter at New to Who Podcast and also on Facebook. Or you can even email us at New to Who Podcast at gmail.com. You can find all our episodes at newtohoo.com on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you feel like subscribing to our podcast or leaving a review for us, it helps get us out there and helps people find our podcast and we'd really, we'd really appreciate it. We hate goodbyes, so until next time, I'm Rob. I'm Stephen. And I'm Dan. Catch ya. Be seeing you. Bye now. When it takes it all, my friend, Never serve you again uh-huh. Uh-huh. And we take this final race So quick and your unruly pace uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I'll destroy all others Give them jewels and then I'll covet them Fitting them with troubles
is the way.